Hi, welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Welcome back to Medicus. This is Nate, and for today's episode, Rasan and I had the privilege to interview Dr. Shika Jain about women in medicine. We are really excited for this episode because it's a topic that we've been wanting to cover ever since the start of the podcast, and we know it's a topic that a lot of people really care about. However, we were waiting until we could find the right guest, and I think that Dr. Jane was the perfect person for this topic. She is super qualified in this area. As a bit of background on her, she's Hemonc faculty at Rush, and she's published in various academic journals on topics such as gender equity, career advancement for women, and social media medicine. In addition, she's written pieces for many different traditional news organizations such as Reader's Digest, Fox News, Medscape, and others. And she founded the Women in Medicine Symposium at Northwestern in 2018. And most recently, this year, she chaired the Women in Medicine Summit, which is a CME event that was hosted here in Chicago this fall. Needless to say, she has all sorts of other qualifications that are too many to list, but you'll hear her talk about all these things and more in today's episode. So with that, let's cut to the interview. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So my name is Dr. Shika Jane. I am an oncologist at Rush University Medical Center. I am uh, the physician director of media for our cancer center. I'm also the co-founder and co-chair of the Rush Center for the Advancement of Women in Healthcare. And I am the co-founder and co-chair of the Women in Medicine Summit. Um, a little bit about me, I've actually, fun fact, been at every academic institution in the Chicagoland area at some point or another in my career. Wow. So I did my college at the University of Chicago, did my residency at University of Illinois, did my fellowship at Loyola, um, and then I worked at Northwestern for a few years as an attending before I came to Rush. So wow. I've been to all five at some point in my journey to becoming an oncologist. So That's quite incredible. Yeah, I have, uh, I have unique perspectives because I think I've been exposed to a lot of different institutions. So what drew you to medicine? So I actually had a very interesting path into medicine. My father's a vascular surgeon. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to round with him on the weekends. So instead of watching cartoons, I would just go with him to see patients, <laughs> which was really fun. Oh, for sure. um, I tell the story of I saw a patient who had staples in his leg, and my dad went to remove the staples because he was a surgeon. And my brother got injured a couple weeks later, and I tried to staple his injury shut. So after that, I wasn't allowed to go round for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I always knew I was intrigued and excited by medicine and healthcare and just being involved and engaged with patients. Mm-hmm. There was a period of time in college where I was kind of questioning that, and I was thinking maybe I would do something different in marketing or media because I also enjoy talking and educating and mm-hmm. teaching people things. And I thought at one point I'd be a teacher, but I was always drawn back to medicine. Um, so it was it was kind of inevitable, I think, because I was passionate about it from a young age, but I did look at other opportunities and I just was always drawn back to medicine. Sure, and what led you to your specialty? So I, uh, I was a medicine resident in my second year of residency and I was just so amazed by the relationships that the oncologists had with their patients. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was really special and the science was obviously fascinating and there's a lot of exciting new developments happening with immunotherapy so I learned a lot of interesting science but 
really the thing that always brought me back to oncology and why I chose it was those patient relationships. I think that we're very lucky as oncologists to be a part of people's lives and really help guide them through challenging times. And so I feel very humbled to be able to take care of patients in that way. And so oncologist, oncology just seemed like a no-brainer for me. Sure. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you're really interested in teaching and really interested in like talking about medicine to like lay people. Yeah. And we noticed that you did have uh, a podcast yourself. It was called The Rush Cast, I believe that's correct. Yes, correct. Uh, and your most recent episode was actually about the topic that we wanted to discuss today, which is about women in medicine and leadership in medicine for women. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and your involvement when, with women in medicine? Yeah, so the podcast, I actually started it um, when I came to Rush, and uh, we talked to lay people about a lot of different topics. Um, Women in medicine is something I'm very passionate about because I'm a woman and I'm in medicine. (laughs) And, you know, I think that as I was going through my career training and education, there were a lot of anecdotal things that happened to me that I don't think I really realized why they were happening to me. I just kind of brushed them off or kept working through it or said maybe I did something wrong. And the more I learned from other people and the more stories I heard from other people, I realized that these were not isolated incidents and they weren't directly related to me. They were systemic issues that a lot of people faced. And so I've always been about making things right. It's part of my personality. My parents would joke that I would see a problem and I would want to fix it right away. Um, And it's just in my nature. So when I started hearing about trainees and students and colleagues who were at my level complaining about things or discussing things that I thought were inequitable or I thought were not right, I wanted to figure out ways to fix it. So that's why I started to kind of get involved in women in medicine, women in healthcare, and equity. Great. So while doing some research for this discussion, um, we came across the idea of mentorship versus sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and discuss how they are like relevant to this topic of leadership and specifically women in leadership? Yeah, so mentorship and sponsorship are both very important. Um, A lot of studies have been done where they discuss the fact that women find it more difficult to find both mentors and sponsors. Sometimes the challenge is people don't want to mentor women because they think, oh, they're going to have children or, oh, they have other priorities or maybe they're going to go part-time. So women often state that they have a challenging time finding mentors and sponsors. There's actually also studies that have been done that have shown that people are more likely to mentor and sponsor men. Um, The study that I always reference is one that came out of Yale where uh, they sent out resumes that were exactly the same for a lab position. One had the name John at the top, one had the name Jennifer on the top, exactly same resumes, and the man was found to be more hireable, more competent, was offered a higher salary, was more likely to get mentorship, Um, which is crazy. So there's data behind the fact that women have a more challenging time finding mentors and sponsors. Um, I think it's important to understand the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. So mentorship I view as somebody who's trying to help someone succeed or trying to help guide them. Mm -hmm. So a mentor could be somebody who you work on a research paper with or somebody who helps give you career advice or gives you home advice. There's all different kinds of mentors and I encourage people to have a variety of mentors, men and women. Um, because you're not going to find one mentor who fits everything. Uh, you may find somebody who really has the family life that you want, and you use them for that. 
there's someone else who has the academic or the career path that you want, so you are able to talk to them about that. But I think of mentorship more as guidance, and sometimes it also results in, you know, academic publications and things. Mm -hmm. Sponsorship is a very different kind of scenario. So when I think of sponsorship, I think of putting somebody up for a promotion or putting someone up for a position or suggesting someone for an award. Mm -hmm. And sponsorship you can even do just at the level of, you know, as a student. So um, I have people say to me, I want to do all these things, but I don't have the time, so I don't want to say no. So what I suggest in those situations is if you want to do something, but you don't have the time and it's a great opportunity, sponsor your friend. Mm -hmm. The way you sponsor your friend is you say, I can't do this, but my friend so-and-so would be perfect, why don't you ask them? So now you may not be getting that opportunity, but your colleague or your friend who you think is equally appropriate for the position or the award or the publication or whatever it is, is now getting that opportunity. And so you've automatically become a sponsor. So there's a lot of different ways to mentor and sponsor, and it's often challenging to find those people. So I tell people to have a binder of of mentors where you find the things that you want to be mentored in and try to find people who you can utilize and who can guide you in those ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's also important to remember you can find mentorship outside of your own department, division, or even institution. Social media is a great way to find mentors. I've actually found three amazing mentors through social media, and we're actually collaborating on multiple research studies now. Um, I have a medical student who's mentoring me uh, on social media <laughs> because she knows way more than I do. Um, so I think that there's you can be mentored from above or sponsored from above or mentored or sponsored from below. You don't need to be you know, a chairperson or a director of a department or something to be a mentor or a sponsor. You can really do it at any level of your career. That kind of leads into our question because we were going to ask you about your personal mentors, if you don't mind. I mean, so you yeah. mentioned the medical student and the social media. and the. <laughs> do you have any good stories from or like ways that they've mentored you? Yeah, so I'll tell you my original and consistent mentor is my dad. He has mentored me my entire life. So I'm very lucky I was born mm-hmm. into a house with a mentor. Um, and he's mentored me and sponsored me by I've written papers with him, um, he, I was one of the first med students to present at a national surgery conference on a research paper that I wrote with him. So I was lucky that I had that, and I've had that consistently. I have another mentor from medical school who was the head of the internal medicine program who had known me since I was a kid, and he mentored me, and I still call him when I have challenging days or challenging times. I had some struggles where I was questioning my career, and so I called him, and because he's known me for so many years, it was easy for him to mentor me and guide me through those scenarios. The the social media person, so she actually is somebody, I, I've i told her before that she's mentoring me unofficially <laughs> because I mentor her on her career and she's mentoring me on social media. She's taught me how to make memes. She's taught me how to make <laughs> gifts. She's, she's opened my eyes actually to some academic journals that are out there on social media publications in healthcare. So that is, you know, it's not a formal relationship where we meet each other every couple of months. It's mainly done virtually. Mm-hmm. I've only actually, we've met in person once, or no, twice. And then the mentors who I found through social media are a couple of oncologists who uh, I reached out to and just said, you know, I want to do what you're doing. How do I get to where you are? And so they they guide me through that. I'll send them an email or a text message sometimes and be like, I'm considering doing this. Do you have any tips? I did my first TV live interview the other day and one of them does a lot of TV interviews so I texted her I said I'm a little bit nervous tell me what I need to do and so she sent me some tips over text so you know 
there's a lot there's formal and informal mentoring and there's a lot of different ways you can find a mentor I think when you really figure out what you want to do that helps but if you don't know what you want to do you can still find a mentor who can help guide you that's true yeah I mean that makes total sense um so how do you go about, I guess, what's the best way to find a mentor? Do you think it's something that you actively have to seek out? Or do you sometimes just allow people to fall into your lap? So I think it can happen both ways. Like the people I found through social media, I reached out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had mentors who've just kind of fallen into my lap where I didn't even realize that we had a mentor relationship until a couple of months in. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, this person is, is helping me so much. I absolutely think of them as a mentor. Um, you know, sometimes, especially in medical school, there's formal relationships where they set you up with a mentor. Mm-hmm. I always had a challenge because I didn't know what I wanted to do and I didn't know how I needed to be mentored. Sure. And so it's hard for mentors if you don't know what you need to be mentored in. And it's hard for mentees if you don't know what you want to be mentored in. Mm-hmm. So I, those formal relationships that were kind of suggested to me were always a bit more challenging if I didn't have a mentor who knew how to mentor somebody who was lost and didn't know what to do. Right. So I think that, you know, having that and the fact that institutions offer that, I think are very, it's very powerful and it can be very good. Like the uh, person I told you from med school, he was an assigned mentor, mm-hmm. but our relationship was different because he knew me personally. So right. he knew how to mentor me and guide me. And actually he's mentored me more now as I've become an attending than he did as a student I mean he mentored me quite a bit then but I would say what he's been helping me with over the last decade has been more impactful and powerful than when we had that initial mentor mentee relationship Mm -hmm. we used to meet for lunch you know every couple of weeks and just get coffee or you know I call him or text him but now it's a bit more where he's actually guiding me through things so I'm going to bring it back to like the Rush um, can't, the rush cast that we yeah. talked about earlier. And sure. like that episode, there's a lot of interesting things in there um, that I wrote down that remind, that made me want to ask you about. Sure. And like one of the first things was you guys were talking about a conference that you recently held. Can yes. you tell us more about the conference? Absolutely. So we just had the inaugural Women in Medicine Summit, which uh, took place at the Drake Hotel. And it was very cool. I mean, I'm saying that a little subjectively since I am the co-founder <laughs> and co-chair, um, but objectively, we had 425 registrants. Wow. We had 26 states and the District of Columbia and nine countries represented. So we had people there from wow. Kenya, Bangladesh, um, the UK, Canada. So that was pretty cool. We had a little bit of an international component as well. It is a multi-institutional event, which I think is very unique. We had sponsorship from uh, almost every academic institution in the city and also some community uh, institutions. We had a steering committee made up of women physicians from around Illinois um, and also from around the country from some national organizations. And the purpose of the summit was, it was a continuing medical education summit, so a CME accredited, so people who attended got credit. Mm -hmm. Um, But the biggest thing for me is, as I said, I'm an action-oriented person, so we wanted to educate, so we spent about half the day in lectures with people from Harvard, from the Kellogg Business School, the woman who uh, coined the term imposter phenomenon oh, wow. and created the Clance Imposter Phenomenon Scale, Dr. Uh, Pauline Clance. She was one of our keynote yeah. speakers. So it was a very empowering morning both days. And then the afternoon, we broke out into breakout sessions where people learned skills. So 
speaker training or leadership training or implicit bias training or um, managing difficult situations, uh, financial help. So there were a lot of breakout sessions, diversity in medicine, breaking barriers. And it was a really cool experience to see all of these amazing people, some who are leaders in their field, some who are trainees and students come together Mm -hmm. and really network and learn from each other. It was multi-specialty, so we had surgeons, medicine physicians, dermatologists, PM&R physicians, we had nurses, we had social workers, we had you know, allied healthcare workers. It was a very empowering experience. And I think the fact that we brought together so many institutions and so many people from different backgrounds made it really special. And that goes back to your mentoring thing. (laughs) I'm sure you made a lot of mentor-mentee connections during the conference, so that's great. I think so. We even had an hour-long kind of mentoring session that we set up Mm. where we had uh, one or two students or young trainees or young faculty who were paired up with with someone who was a bit more seasoned Mm -hmm. to do some formal mentoring. And then we also, so all of our volunteers were med students from the five institutions around this, actually more than five institutions around the city. So that was really great to get students involved. And we also, um, our two of our panels, we had moderated by a student and then myself or my co-chair because I think it's really important to give students the opportunity to do these things so you get used to doing them. That's why I feel so comfortable doing these things now because I was given the opportunity to speak as a medical student. And so now if I were to speak at a national conference, I'd say, that's no big deal. I've been doing it since I was a med student. Yeah. So I want to make sure you know, that we, we encourage our trainees and our students and our young people to do these types of things because it's really how we move science and healthcare forward. And you need to start building those skills at an early time in your career. Absolutely. And is there a plan for it to happen next year? Yes. So next year it's October 9th and 10th. Wonderful. Again at the Drake. And we're probably going to put out a call soon for um, volunteer applications. The the challenge is, especially with students, you don't always know your schedule. And so we we totally understand that. So we try to work around that. But... um, but yeah, so October 9th and 10th, we would love to see all of you yeah, there. Yeah, it on my calendar for sure. And there are men there too, so it's not just for women. My husband came, my dad came, and we had probably about 15 other men, probably more. I didn't count. I didn't keep track. <laughs> but there were definitely a handful of men in attendance, and we had a lot of men who were asking if they could come, so I have a feeling next year we'll have even more. Awesome. So from this conference, maybe you can give us a few highlights of specific challenges that women in medicine face in regards to like either from your colleagues or maybe patients just recognition yeah so I think you know there's a lot of things that go into the barriers that women face in healthcare and in medicine one of the biggest challenges is um, the system isn't really set up for women Mm -hmm. Dr. Silver gave this great example of a bathroom stall where um, women and men like they have an equal number of stalls, but it takes longer for women to, to go to the bathroom. It's right. just the way it is. So when someone brought that up, an architect said, well, a female architect should figure out the solution, which is crazy because the solution is you create more stalls. Right. That You don't need a man or a woman to decide that. So one of the big themes that emerged from this is that we don't need to fix women. We need to fix the system. Mm-hmm. And the system can be fixed by both men and women. Going back specifically to your question, so challenges that women face, number one, a lot of times women aren't addressed by their title and men are. Mm -hmm. And what we found in studies is that is actually 
leads to women not being satisfied with their jobs, women getting frustrated. Um, it also affects a woman's ability to be promoted mm -hmm. because let's say you're at a conference and a man is introduced as Dr. Smith and the woman is introduced as Kate, but they're both physicians at the same level. You now think of Dr. Smith as the expert and Kate, who's Kate? So you're automatically giving the man more uh, authority than the woman, despite the fact they're at the same level. And so there have been several studies that have come out showing that at conferences, men are more likely to be introduced by their title than women. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, women talk all the time about how they'll be standing and talking to a patient for 30 minutes, and then at the end of the conversation, the patient will say, that's great, thank you so much, when will my doctor be coming in? And that can be very disparaging and very frustrating when you've spent so much time coming up with a plan, called in the prior auths, you've called in the insurance, you've done all this work, you've worked with your team, and obviously the team is important, but if you're the physician and you've gone through the plan, it's very frustrating to then hear, well, when's my doctor coming in? Sure. So I think that's a challenge that, that a lot of women expressed. And then, you know, women are often expected to traditionally be at home taking care of the kids, sometimes with elder care, taking care of aging parents. And so a lot of people express frustration with home life and trying to balance that. There's actually a study looking at emotional exhaustion among men and women. And the chart I show, which I think is quite, it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of sad, <laughs> is that men and women have about the same amount of emotional exhaustion when they're single. When they get married, women's emotional exhaustion levels go up and men's go down. Um, <laughs> When they have kids, women's emotional exhaustion levels go up and men go down. Wow. Hmm. So it's interesting just to see that this data is showing that there is still, while men are doing much more at home or spouses, partners are doing much more at home, mm -hmm. there is still this disconnect that happens. A lot of women also complain that you know if they get pregnant or if they have children, then it's assumed that they don't want a leadership position. So for example, somebody I was just talking to, she was told someone that she was pregnant and they said oh I was going to offer this opportunity to you but I'm guessing you don't want it now and she said why and they said well you're pregnant you're gonna have kids too soon and she said yes but I'm yeah. still interested in this opportunity right. or people are told don't go for that leadership opportunity until your kids are in college or you know don't don't go for this promotion because you're not going to be able to spend time with your family so those are challenges that we just need to change the way people view women because yes, physiologically, women are gonna have children. That doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be less ambitious or they want to change their career path. Some women do wanna do that and that's also fine, but we need to find ways to, to make sure that we adapt to those types of situations as opposed to just discounting the women who go through that. And then the mentorship and sponsorship piece, I mean, a lot of people felt like they didn't have mentors or sponsors, or they didn't feel like they knew how to find mentors or sponsors, and that's a challenge. And then the other thing, studies have shown that men will often go for a promotion or go for something more than women will. Mm -hmm. And the joke always is women wait until, or men will go for a promotion if they meet two of six criteria. A woman will wait until she meets 10 of six criteria before she <laughs> even puts herself up for it. And so teaching women negotiation tactics, teaching them you know, that it's okay to not meet, check all the boxes before you apply for a position or a promotion. And then the pay gap, I mean, there's so much data out there that shows that the pay gap exists regardless of how many hours worked. You know, They do these studies that show it doesn't matter how many kids you have, whether you work part-time or full-time, they account for all of these things, and they still show a significant pay gap mm -hmm. between men and women physicians in a variety of fields. So 
that can be very discouraging too to know you're working the ex- as hard if not harder than your coworker, but he is making more money than you so these are all challenges that were brought up and you know we're not going to solve all the world's problems in a weekend mm-hmm. but i think people left feeling more empowered after the conference sure so when you mentioned the pay gap i, I switched over to the uh doximity uh report have you looked at that report before i have yeah that's one of my favorite ones i always go back to that one i always wonder why milwaukee has such a higher <laughs> salary and they're only like an hour and a half north of us but that's that's you know that's a different topic yeah but yeah, so it's the thing that's interesting to me is that the pay gap for women and men, it persists around like fifteen to twenty percent, even though like you would think. I mean, they've been so proactive. I feel like about like making sure men and women were involved in medicine early on. Mm-hmm. Like, what was the, the first year? One of our questions has this in there, so I guess we're gonna like spoil it. But one of the first question <laughs> questions was like, the first year that men and women were applying to medical school in equal numbers and like mm-hmm. uh, matriculated into medical school in equal numbers which was like 2004 mm-hmm. and it's been somewhere around there i think it just pat women just passed men in like 2018 yeah i know my medical school class was like over 60 percent women so yeah, yeah i think 2017 is the first time it was like 50.7 percent women yeah or something like that yeah yeah um but like yet yeah, this still remains like which seems so bizarre that it's it's like been 15 years since yeah. equal numbers of men and women have been entering the field, but they still can't figure out how to give. I mean, I don't know. Do you, what do you think the issue is? Is it a lack of standard contracts? Is it just, I don't know. What do you think problems the problem negotiating, is? negotiating, like you mentioned. So there's a lot of problems that go into it. I think, one, there's not a lot of transparency. I mean, talking about money is a challenging thing. Mm-hmm. It's very, every time I give a talk on equity, I always get a question of, well, who am I supposed to ask? How am I supposed to ask? How do I find out what other people are making? And so it's always a very challenging topic to talk about. I think women have accepted less for years. A lot of time it's, oh my gosh, thank you so much for this opportunity. I mean, it happened to me, It and I talk about these things. So not that it hasn't happened to me recently, but it's happened to me in the past. And so I think that the challenge is, one, women often don't know. So they, they assume they're being given a fair deal and mm-hmm. It's not that they accept their first offer. Oftentimes women do negotiate, but then they aren't given it, and I don't know why. Sometimes I think it's just because it's the way it's always been, and people have been getting away with it for so long, so there's no reason to change because there's no transparency and there's no real there's no real repercussions, so to speak. And you know, people have also said that women do ask for these things, but they're just told no more often, mm-hmm. and they accept it more often. So... I wish I had an answer for you as to why it still persists. I think that there's been a big movement to work towards trying to fix it, and more and more data is coming out, and more institutions are trying to be held accountable. So, for example, a lot of institutions have done internal kind of audits of their uh, of their salaries mm-hmm. to look to see if there is inequity in their salaries. Now, the challenge occurs then, let's say you find this pay gap, what do you do about the people who've been paying and been paid unequally for the la- unequally for the last fifty years? Right. Do you go back and back pay them for the last fifty years, or do you just start at fresh? The people who've been getting underpaid for the last fifty years are not going to be okay with saying, "Okay, now it's two thousand nineteen. We're just going to start equaling playing field." Mm-hmm. Now they're going to say, "What about all this lost salary for the last several mm-hmm. decades of my career?" And institutions probably wouldn't be able to survive if they had to back pay all those women 
So I think it's a very challenging topic because, you know, at the at the summit, somebody asked, okay, women, raise your hand if you'd be willing to pay be paid 80% of your male colleagues are paid and nobody raised their hand. And she was like, oh, you know, be reasonable. Okay, fine. What about if you're willing to be paid 90%? So it's only a 0.1% gap uh, difference and no one raised their hand. She's like, okay, well, what if it's like $10 difference? Would you be willing to be paid $10 difference? And the crazy thing is, as she kept dropping, some people would keep their hands up saying, yes, they were willing mm-hmm. to be paid because they figure a $10 difference isn't as big of a deal as a 20% difference. Right. And so I think a lot of women have just learned to accept, I'm going to be paid less, so I'd rather be paid a sliver of less as opposed to a significant mm-hmm. amount less and accept that. So. Again, I don't know if I have an answer for you as to why it still exists. I think it's a very complex problem, and it's going to require some major overhauls of the system. But when those overhauls are happening, you're really going to have to think deeply about what about the people who had you know, millions of dollars that they've lost over the last right. several years. Because one of um, Dr. Caprice Greenberg, one of our speakers, gave, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like $2 million in lost pay over a career for a general surgeon. It was 1.5 or 2 million, something, I mean, a significant mm-hmm. chunk of money. So the question is, what what do you do when the when the system changes and you equalize the playing field? What happens to those people who lo- who technically lost wages for a significant amount of time? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. Um, and I, I guess, I, yeah, I don't know the answer either. I know when New York announced their like free medical school tuition. Yeah. There were people like up in arms, like, "Oh, why am I not getting this?" Exactly. But, yeah, I guess you have to start somewhere, and um, hopefully, it continues on a good trajectory. So, I know you mentioned kind of the difficulty with childbearing, and that's like a thing that women do. <laughs> and I know that you are married to a physician and have a couple children. Mm-hmm. So, without throwing your husband under the bus. <laughs> Can you expand on like any challenges that you found that are unique to you as a woman in a dual physician household? Sure. So my husband is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I will say that first. He's absolutely fantastic. He's a gastroenterologist mm-hmm. and we have three children. So we have a five-year-old daughter and then twin boys who are going to be two in October. Mm-hmm. I mean, life, marriage is not easy to begin with. Right. I mean, marriage takes a lot of work and anyone who tells you otherwise is full of hooey. <laughs> I think that we have had challenges just from being married and both working. We've had challenges with both of us being physicians, and we've had challenges with us having three children. Mm-hmm. It's required a lot of communication because our call schedules are different. If he's on call and he gets called into the hospital, we need to make sure that one of us is home with the kids. Mm-hmm. So you know, I have to make sure that I'm not late in the hospital on those days. He picks up the slack a lot at home especially with all of the other things I'm doing on top Mm -hmm. of medicine. I mean, planning a summit is no small feat. And so there are a lot of late night phone calls. There were meetings where I'd be stuck late at the hospital. So he, you know, he picked up the slack uh, quite a bit, but it really requires communication. I mean, we have a Google uh, calendar that Mm -hmm. I manage and, you know, I have everybody's, my kid's activity schedule, my schedule, my husband's call schedule and his social schedule all on this calendar so I can make sure that the kids are getting picked up from the right place at the right time, make sure somebody's home. If my husband's on call, do we need a babysitter? So it just, communication is so key. And what we have found is the times that we struggle as a couple is when we don't find that time to communicate. Because, and it often, it could just be a text message, but 
making sure that we're talking is the only way that we haven't driven each other crazy yet. And I really, I haven't driven him crazy with my schedule and everything that I need to do. We also have a very strong support system in our families. Mm-hmm. Um, both sets of parents are extremely involved in our kids' lives, and we are very fortunate to have that. Um, they help with the kids. We have an amazing nanny and babysitters who are really the only reason that we're able to do what we do. <laughs> Um, so having that support system, I think, is really important as well. Uh, and it might not be a family support system. Some people don't live close to family. Sometimes it's a friend support system. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a babysitter squad that you have that you can reach out to. But communication with everyone is very key. And, I mean, I fail at it oftentimes where people will – my nanny will say, uh, we need to sit down and talk, and then we'll sit down and talk, and we'll figure out problems that are going on at home or how we can better adjust. My husband will text me and say okay I need 15 minutes where we can sit down and just talk about a bunch of stuff and so (laughs) because sometimes we're just like ships passing in the night and we try to make sure that we go out on date nights Mm -hmm. relatively regularly it was when we only had one child we go at least every other week we go out just the two of us now with three kids it's a little (laughs) bit less but my parents actually told us when we found out we were pregnant the first time they said you need to make time for each other because you both are going to get bogged down in child stuff and work stuff. And unless you two remember why you got married and that you love each other, Mm -hmm. this isn't going to work. So I think it's just, it takes a lot of work, but it also, we have to do things that, you know, together. Mm -hmm. For example, I'm speaking at a conference next weekend and my parents are amazing and are taking care of the kids. And my husband and I are flying to the conference. So we're going to spend three days together away from the kids I'll be speaking but when I'm not speaking him and I are going to go like do fun stuff together so you just have to you have to find ways to do that even if it's you know going out for two hours to go to a movie or Mm -hmm. something so I think I'd like to maybe circle back to something you've kind of mentioned or like a couple times that we haven't really delved like deep into yet and that's leadership in medicine for women Mm -hmm. Um, so I know when I was listening to your podcast you did talk about like a a women's leadership development program that you guys are starting here. Yeah. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so actually the um, there's a women's leadership council here at Rush, which Dr. Sheila Dugan leads. She's a force. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's been at Rush for a while, and she's been doing equity work for a while, trying to um, help women kind of increase the pipeline into women's leadership at Rush. And so through that, they've also developed a women's leadership development program where it's basically – helping develop women leaders. It's exactly what it sounds like. They do skill building, they do kind of teaching, and they they find women who they think are interested in being leaders or who are people who might be good leaders uh, at the broader level at the institution and kind of help guide them through that. There's also mentorship programs here. And the thing I think that Rush does that's really cool is there's a lot of external leadership development programs like the Carol Emmett Fellowship, and there's things... I'm going to throw out a bunch of acronyms, and I'm not going to tell you what they stand for because I don't want to mess it up. But there's like, there's the AAMC ELAM program. There's the GWIMS program. There's the CWAMS program. So there's all these national organizations that really work in different ways on women's leadership and leadership development. And so Rush is very good at sending people to these types of programs, certain programs, that they feel will help them develop their leadership skills. 
Um, one thing I want to I want to bring up that you guys talked about in your podcast was the idea of like tokenism, mm-hmm. and that was really interesting to me because I never thought about tokenism outside the context of like movies <laughs> and like <laughs> having like token actors in movies. Yeah. Can you talk about like how or what tokenism means in this context and how you like avoid it when you're trying to choose women leaders? Yeah. So a challenge that often happens when I talk about this is people say, well we want the most qualified person. It doesn't matter if they're a woman or a man. And I absolutely agree. We want the most qualified person. You shouldn't just hire a woman because she's a woman. That's silly because you're not going to get the best and the brightest. The challenge is when you're hiring people, often people will say, oh, my friend so-and-so is great for this position. Or they'll they'll think of people within their circle Mm -hmm. and they don't think outside the circle. So when someone says we need to hire a woman because we're all men, Tokenism would be just hiring someone just to say you have a woman on the board or say you have a woman in leadership. But you don't actually, one, they may not be the most qualified. Two, even if they are the most qualified, they were hired solely because they are a woman. Mm -hmm. So their opinions might not be listened to as much because they aren't seen as a woman leader or just a leader. They're seen as a woman who was hired because we needed a woman. I, I give the example of outgoing CEO of Rush He and I sat down when I first got to Rush because I was trying to get some sponsorship and funding for the summit. Mm -hmm. And he told me the story that I thought was so fascinating. He said, you know, we sit on a lot of different boards, sit on a lot of different um, finders board, or what are they called, search committees, trying to hire people. And he said, I was on all these search committees and I was seeing all of these candidates that were coming through were looking exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And he said, I couldn't figure out why. And then I looked at the search committee. And the search committee was made up of people who looked exactly like the people we were hired, we were bringing in for interviews. And he said, you know, I got rid of the search committee. I rebuilt it with a diverse group of people. And he is, this man is brilliant. And what he's done for this institution is fat, is amazing. But he had the insight to say, we've created a search committee that is heterogeneous, or is not heterogeneous. It's very homogenous. And it's they're bringing in exactly the same kinds of people. So let's recreate the search committee and he said the candidates they got were completely different they were amazing candidates but they were from a very diverse group so it wasn't tokenism where a homogenous group of people are saying oh well there's this one woman that we could potentially hire (laughs) this was a group of people saying these are some amazing leaders across the country Mm -hmm. that weren't even being considered because that group of people didn't know those leaders even existed because it wasn't in their circle so it's it's human nature. I mean, it happened with me when I was planning the summit. I tell the story, and I think it's really funny. But when I started uh, kind of creating the steering committee or reaching out to people, I had about 10 people on the steering committee. And someone reached out to me and said, you know, Shika, this is a great steering committee. You've got every institution represented. You've got multiple specialties represented. That's fantastic. Did you notice that they're all Indian women? <laughs> and I... I was like, what are you talking about? I came from Kalamazoo, Michigan. I didn't have very many Indian friends. It's not like my only friends are Indian. This, you're crazy. There's no way. And then I looked at the list, and I was like, oh, my gosh, you're so right. And I, I literally did not even see it, even though it was right in front of my face. Mm-hmm. And I talk on this topic. So it can happen to anyone, and it's usually not done with malicious intent. And then I started reaching out to my friends who are not Indian and saying, I need people on the steering committee who have diverse ideas, who are heterogeneous, who are different people. Who can you suggest? And now if you look at our steering committee, I mean, we have amazing people on there. And it's a very diverse group of women and a few men. So I think tokenism is dangerous for a variety of reasons, but it's easy to fix. 
It's just you don't want to hire someone just because they're a woman. And you don't want to say, well, I need a woman on the board, so just bring somebody on. You want to hire somebody who's going to be extremely qualified. But the only way you can really do that is by looking within yourself and seeing, have I really reached out to people outside my circle? Have I asked people who I might not otherwise have asked? Am I finding the best candidate or am I just finding the easiest candidate who you know I know? Because tokenism can be really dangerous and detrimental not only to the person who's being hired, but to the entire team. It can be really detrimental to the mission. Yeah, absolutely. So it almost sounds like what you need to do is to address your implicit biases, right? And I guess, what is the best way of going about that? Because sometimes you, you select people, for example, you know, when you were talking about the CEO, maybe let's say like these people were very homogenous committee, but they were great. And so is there a way to make them see beyond what, what they are like? Does that yeah. make sense? Absolutely. So you bring up an excellent point. So implicit bias is something we all have. I mean, it's how we live our lives. It's how, you know, you assess dangerous things. It's how you you interact with people. So there's nothing wrong with implicit bias. Mm-hmm. I think the real way of addressing it is realizing that you have implicit bias. And then by realizing that, trying to think beyond that. So like for me, someone else pointed it out to me. I didn't even realize it. But we should be comfortable pointing it out to each other in ways that are professional and polite. Like the way this person reached out to me was very professional and very polite and really because they wanted the summit to succeed and they wanted to make sure that we were thinking of all all potential scenarios. Mm-hmm. So I think a part of it is on us and you know they've done implicit bias training and some studies have shown that when you do this training you actually see an improvement in how people interact and how people do hiring and how people you know evaluate people. So I think some of it might just be learning and educating ourselves. Some of it's educating each other. Um, But I think in the world we live in, we live in such a diverse world with so many different types of people and cultures and ethnicities and genders. We need to be aware that we all have implicit bias. And by first identifying that, then we can really take the next step and say, okay, this big decision I'm making, am am I being, you know, smart about how I'm making this decision? Um, Is my implicit bias guiding my decision? Is this something where I could potentially have been more diverse in my picking of people? Did I really get the best candidates or did I just get the candidates who are from a similar background to me? And, you know, when people point that out to me, it really makes me think. And I think, I hope it's made me better at doing these types of things because I think about it more now than I did a year ago. So I think it's really educating and and people need to be open with themselves and others and not feel like they're being attacked or feel like they're being insulted when when these things are brought up because it's not a negative on you. It's just we're trying to make the world a better place and to do that we need to have all voices that are relevant at the table. Right, absolutely. So in your Kevin MD article, you described how taking time off for maternity leave may have contributed to you having experiencing imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. For listeners who haven't read the article, can you explain your advice to female medical students and physicians who may begin to take on motherly roles during their studies or careers and how to best avoid imposter syndrome? Yeah. So I don't think you can avoid imposter syndrome. I think it's impossible to do because everybody has it. Mm-hmm. I have it. I'm sure you've had it. It's something it's just something that exists. And so Dr. Pauline Clant spoke, and she, she's the one who coined the term imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome. 
And it's funny because she she made the point. She said, you know, everyone calls it imposter syndrome, but it's not actually a syndrome because it's not a mental health problem. It's a phenomenon because it's, it's something that happens to us. But it's become imposter syndrome. And Michelle Obama talked about it. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about it, I think number one, the reason that we feel this imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome is at least in medicine, is we are all very high achieving people. I mean, it's taken a lot of hard work to get to where we are. Mm-hmm. And then throughout your training, you're always being told you're wrong or you're not good enough or you need to improve on this, which is good to a certain extent. You know, we need to be better. We need to improve. We need to learn. You need to read. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a level of truth behind these insecurities that you have when you're going through training. Mm-hmm. But those should not be feeding into you not feeling you're good enough or you're smart enough, or you don't belong, or that you're just lucky for where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the way I look at imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome nowadays is, first, I look to see why am I feeling that way. So am I feeling that way because I need to increase my knowledge base? Or am I feeling that way because I don't have the experience or expertise in this topic? Or am I feeling this way because I'm just insecure? So once I identify why I'm feeling that way, which sometimes I can't identify and then I just keep feeling it and it stinks. (laughs) But once you identify why you're feeling it, if it's something where you have some educational component you need to, you know, brush up on or there's something you need to be more of an expert on or you need to read about something, then I do that. If it's something where I'm feeling that way because I'm surrounded by amazing people who are way more accomplished than me and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how the heck did I end up here? Then I have to sit back and think, you know what? I've done this, this, and this. I've gotten to this point because I've worked very hard and I've published or I've spoken or you know, I created this summit. So I do belong here. I sat on a panel the other day with two women physicians who one was one of my attendings when I was a resident and the other interviewed me for a position in the med school Mm -hmm. from two different institutions and I was sitting on this panel and they were calling us all experts and I I called my husband afterwards I was like I can't believe I just did that I can't believe I was on a panel with these women because they've been in medicine for you know much longer than I have but they haven't done the research I have on equity they haven't spoken on equity. They've lived it because they're women in medicine, but I am an expert in a different way than they are experts. Mm-hmm. And so I think when, you know, when I when I got my first attending job, I kept telling myself and telling everyone, I think they made a mistake. I think they called the wrong person. I can't believe I'm being invited for this opportunity. Like I can't, I'm, I really the entire day thought I was getting punked. And I was waiting for like Ashton Kutcher to jump out and tell me that I was in the wrong place and surprise. (laughs) So I think we all suffer from it. But what I've learned is you just, you use it to make yourself better. Mm -hmm. So if it's something where you have a deficiency, use it to make yourself better. If it's something where you, you are the expert or at least in that room, you can talk confidently on this topic or you can write on this topic, then own it. I recommend that anybody who's anybody in training as a career physician or in your attending life or even not physicians, I recommend you create an awesome list. So this is actually one of my friends had suggested this to me. She said, make an awesome list and just basically having it nice things patients have said about you, accolades you've gotten, if somebody sends you a nice comment on something, if someone sends you a text, screenshot it, put it in like, send an email to yourself, put it in your awesome list file. 
a nice patient letter, take a picture, put it in the awesome list file. Because on days when you're feeling like an imposter or, or just when you're having a bad day, mm-hmm. open up your awesome list and remind yourself that you are awesome. Because we all have things that make us feel good. You know, you have an evaluation that makes you feel good. Or you have something where, wow, I had this paper that somebody cited who is like my hero. You have these different things that make you feel accomplished and make you remember, yeah, I am good enough to be here. It wasn't luck that got me here. I worked my behind off to get to where I am. But when we're in those situations, we forget I mean, even leading a summit like that, I, I, I stood at the podium and I told the entire crowd that, or the entire attendants that I was having imposter phenomenon standing on the podium in front of them because there were people there who are so accomplished. And the fact that they were listening to me, I thought it was crazy. I said, why are these people even listening to me? But you take that and you say, you know what? I created something. I've done something. Yeah, it might not be perfect, but people find value in what I'm doing. And so it's not always external affirmation. You know, those are very helpful, but you need to find those internal affirmations as well and find ways to address the things that are missing, fill in the gaps. And then when you're actually in the spot of doing something amazing or speaking or whatever it may be, don't let your imposter phenomenon overtake you and dictate how you're going to respond to things or how you're going to behave let it amplify what you're already doing and make yourself better it kind of sounds like so we go to a jesuit university i guess you spent you said you spent a year in fellowship at loyola three, three years three Hemo- years okay. hematology oncology fellowship at loyola wow. i didn't Long realize that was a three-year yeah. fellowship yeah three year that's why i'm telling you you're in training forever four years med school yeah. three years residency three years fellowship yeah but yeah, so that time. just reminds, uh, so we are constantly being told to reflect and journal, and I think it's like a Jesuit, um, perhaps like a Jesuit value, you mm-hmm. might call it. So that just, what you were saying really reminds me of like everything they're constantly telling us to do. Yeah. Like, always like be writing down mm-hmm. like the things that are important to you, you know, yeah. and just like writing, like you always mentioned earlier, like writing down your mentors, mm-hmm. things like that, just being organized um, with your thoughts and like being able to go back and look and uh, reflect on things. Yeah. It's funny, I'll tell you, I used to write a lot as a child, and I used to write a lot all the way up until college. Then I went to University of Chicago, and all my writing like fell off because I didn't have time, and <laughs> I was convinced I was a horrible writer because I don't know if anybody knows the curriculum at University of Chicago, but it was not meant for my type of writing. <laughs> <laughs> but I started writing again um, in as my first or second year as an attending because of just that, because something would get me fired up or I was reflecting on something or I wanted to write about something and I never thought about getting it published but the first time something really upset me that was written in the news I wrote a response piece to it and I sent it to Kevin MD and that's how I started writing op-eds and things so you know you can use that and channel that and it can even help propel your career when you decide if you decide that you want to publish something Mm -hmm. that you've written because I mean, our voices are very powerful, and I don't think we realize that. And I didn't realize that I was any deep good at writing until I was in attending and I started actually writing down my thoughts. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to get back to that, but I now know a lot of med students and residents and fellows who write op-eds and who publish, and it's very powerful stuff. So I strongly encourage, even if you don't want to write for publication, just write to get your thoughts out there and get them on a page, and they'll help you. Maybe now you can just entertain us with the, <laughs> with some thoughts on where you think, you know, women leadership in medicine is going, where the field is going, 
as a whole, maybe what progress will be made. Yeah. So I'm incredibly optimistic. I mean, I have met some I've met some amazing women leaders and men leaders over the last, you know, 5 years who are really interested in pushing things forward and not at the glacial pace that it's been going up mm-hmm. until now. And I think that we're heading in a direction where I mean, there's more women than men in entering medical school. It takes time to change these types of things because the leaders who are in positions of power are there for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. But what we're starting to see is that some of the leaders are starting to understand these challenges and are seeing that actually having more women leaders is beneficial not only to the women, it's beneficial to patients because studies have shown that when women advance in academic medicine, women's healthcare actually improves. They're also finding that it's good for their institution because institutions that have more women in leadership positions have actually been found to get more accolades. If there's uh, no pay disparity, if there's you know very small pay disparity, they've actually been shown to have increased engagement scores. Um, people are happier, they're more productive. So there's a lot of good things that come along with treating people in an equi- equitable way. And I always say it's not that it's just the right thing to do, it's also the ethical thing to do and it's also what's best for our patients because at the end of the day we're all in this field because we want to take care of people Mm -hmm. and every women's health movement has been basically run by women and there's a big correlation through history of you know when women got the right to vote that's when the first maternal government funded maternal uh, health uh, programs were created when in post-civil war when women started becoming um, physicians that's when women stopped being identified as sickly and frail because that's how they were always identified. So that dialogue changed. It wasn't until 1993 that Congress passed a law that women could be enrolled in NIH-funded, or should be, had to be enrolled in NIH-funded clinical trials. There were actually observational trials, large observational studies that women weren't included in for years. There were um, women of childbearing age weren't allowed to be in any sort of clinical trials for decades. And so a lot of the treatments that we do and symptoms that we diagnose are based on only 50% of the population because women were never studied and physiologically were different. Mm -hmm. So I'm very optimistic because things have changed and I've talked to women leaders who are in their 70s now who've been doing this for years and they say things have changed, but they haven't changed enough. Mm-hmm. But I think with social media and the connectivity and the ability to talk to people kind of across the globe in a very easy way, and the research that's coming out, we have the opportunity and the ability to really change things. By the time my kids and your kids, if you ever have kids or if you have kids, are um, old enough to, to hopefully reap the benefits. Well, thank you so much for sharing all those thoughts. If anyone's interested in learning more about maybe a woman in medicine or maybe about more about you, where should they go? So I've got a lot of presence on social media. Mm-hmm. So okay. they can find me on Twitter at ShikaJaneMD, which is S-H-I-K-H-A-J-A-I-N-M-D. I'm on Instagram at ShikaJaneMD. I have a website um, that I don't update very often, but it's there. So it's www.ShikaJaneMD.com. They're interested in learning about the Women in Medicine Summit. Our website is womeninmedicinesummit.org. I also launched this national initiative for gender equity uh, called the, moon, the Gender Moonshot. 
So you can also find information on www.thegendermoonshot.com. So any of those ways would be great ways to get in touch with me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah, Yeah, it was great. And to all of our listeners out there, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.